Hello and welcome to Libraries Lead the New Normal, brought to you by Ace Chicago Events and the iSchools at Syracuse and the University of Texas at Austin. Today, we're going to kick off our second season, and we have huge change in the Library Lead pod here. In our last episode of the first season, we had a guest join us, Beth Fautan, assistant professor at Syracuse University's iSchool, and she was fantastic. And the conversation was really exciting and, quite frankly, it was really refreshing to have someone who knew what they were talking about in the room. So with that, we really figured she needed to be part of every episode. So we begged her to come on and co-host the podcast, and she has graciously agreed. So please welcome Beth Potan as the permanent co-host of the library's Lead in the New Normal podcast. Welcome, Beth. Thanks so much for inviting me, begging me to join. I'm glad to be here and bring some <laughs> real experience to this podcast. Uh, my name is Beth Potan. I'm a pro assistant professor at Syracuse University. I graduated from the University of Washington, which is where I was lucky enough to work with Mike. And I am glad to be here. So the last two years have been brutal, but also life-altering and transformative. What's the new normal? Well, that for us, that means what does it look like for people and what are the unique roles and opportunities for libraries and librarians as society comes to grips with the new normal? So for this podcast, our, co our core focus is going to be about information, resources, books, services, place, access, but also expanding into new roles involving emergency preparedness, coping with mis- and disinformation, and enhancing digital and physical life. So the structure of our podcast is approximately one hour, including our what's up, a deeper dive into a main topic, and our awesome library thingies. So let's get right into it. Dave, what's up? Hey, it's been uh, a, a fun week. Um, the first thing I ever did when I went to the University of South Carolina five years ago is I had to get the school through accreditation. So five years later, I decided to leave. I'm now at the University of Texas and right in the middle of having to do a report for accreditation. So my week was <laughs> primarily talking about outcomes and how outcomes are connected to your exterior information and then lead to learning outcomes and you know, my head melted. The good news is in this one, I was only really the, reading the drafts and reacting to it. There were some really brilliant people uh, at, at the University of Austin that are asleep right now who had to actually work through. So that was a lot of my week. How about you, Beth? What were you What were you up to this week? So this week I've been recording online for my online class that's going to start in um, January. And we are refocusing our... A uh, program at the Syrac at Syracuse for our MLIS program to focus on information equity, justice, and community engagement and engaged communities. And so we have been working to make our core class focus on cultural competence and cultural responsiveness, so that we can make sure that these kinds of issues are understood by every person graduating from our library program, rather than having courses like that be an elective. Uh, so, Mike, what's up with you? Hmm. That that's ter that's terrific. Well, my mine's a little less hopeful. Uh, it's been a, a bit of a downer lately. I uh, I plugged back into the news stream and uh, checked out what's going on in the world. I have to admit, the last few weeks I've I've kind of been out of it, and you know, if I didn't think it could get any worse, but it has. You know, COVID. I mean, we just ignore it, and yet fifteen hundred people a day. 
are dying of COVID. That's that's a 9-11 every two days. And yet, you know, it just and people think it's over. And uh, and and some of the tragic stories about that. The good news is that the uh, uh, the mandates for vaccination seem to be working. There's a lot more people who are getting vaccinated because of that. I read read or heard something that uh, something like 90 over 95 percent of the U.S. military is now vaccinated. And um, I, I think that that's really healthy. But also the, the mis and disinformation that's out there is just brutal. And uh, uh, the revelations about Facebook and uh, social media are, are really of a concern. So that's my what's up. I hope uh, in the rest of the podcast, you guys can help uh, to, to bring us up. All right. So uh, <laughs> that's what's up with me. And let me do be the one to say we're going to take a quickly, quick, short break, a uh, little musical interlude and come back with our main topic. And the main topic for tonight is the uh, evolution and the changing nature of the new normal in the workplace. And this one, we're going to focus a little more narrowly. We'll talk about schools and education, everything from pre-K to post graduate education and even training in the public sector um, or the private sector, and then uh, public service settings, things like medicine and telemedicine, and of course, the roles of libraries and information. So Yanni, give us some music and we'll take a short break. Here we go. Okay, and we're back. Our main topic again for this podcast is the emerging, evolving, changing nature of work and workplaces. Is there a new normal? What is the new normal? And um, is it starting to, you know, settle down or is it as wild as it has been for the last two years? In this episode, in particular, we want to focus on the nature of schools and the nature of work for teachers and support staff and bus drivers and everybody else. Uh, education at all levels, whether it's pre-K or higher education or uh, education for uh, in training in, in uh, the manual profession, so to speak, as well as human services professions like medicine and, of course, uh, the changing nature of work for librarians and other people in libraries. And I'll just kick it off by saying one of the things that, I mean, it, it's taken hold and it's, it's very different is in telemedicine. And that uh, it, it just bef be, before the pandemic, uh, everybody resisted doing um, doctor appointments and appointments with the medical things online. And now it's expected. And I don't know, do you guys think that, uh, Physicians and physician's assistants, nurse practitioners and medical officers are going to go back to the way it was? Um, or is it going to be even more online? Well, I, I, I haven't I haven't um, gone to the doctor even that much over the past two years, which is, I think, one mm -hmm. of those other things that's happening during COVID. Right. We know that people are getting like diagnosed with things at later stages because they haven't been keeping up with appointments. So many places were closed for so long. And the appointments that I have had have been telecenter appointments. And so 
thinking about, you know, what that means and having to go into places for blood work, but then only getting to see people online. It's, it's been a weird transition for me. Um, I think there are some maybe spaces in, in medical health where this makes sense, like counseling, um, having therapy where we can just talk from anywhere rather than having to travel into offices. I think it really makes sense in that kind of context. I'd be worried, though, if that was the only way I could see my general practitioner. Yeah, Let me just jump in quick, Dave, and I'll give it to you, because I was also thinking, I don't have it on right now, but I also have a, you know, a digital watch now, um, and mine happens to be a Galaxy watch, but I can do an EKG on my watch. I can take my pulse on my watch. I use that. Dave, you have a watch, I assume? I have yeah, my Apple watch. Beth, yes, I do. You, <clears throat> you have an Apple watch, Beth? Yeah, I'm, there she I'm is. Watch, <clears throat> I'm watch free, but I... I just asked my partner to get me like a fancy watch and a heart rate monitor that you can wear when you're working out because I've been working out a so, lot lately. And yeah. so using it for that. So that connects to the, the medical aspect too, but I'll, I'll let Dave jump in. Yeah, I mean, that's what we've been, we've been trying to come to grips with for a long time is the idea that, you know, telemedicine is now just to the point where the pandemic's brought the face-to-face connection with it. But for a long time, we've been moving to telemedicine. And and I remember many years ago talking to a medical manufacturer and they were talking about their number one growth market was the worried well. And that was the idea that they were, they were going to come up with consumer facing technologies, EKGs, et cetera, because, and their market was people who were very healthy, who worked out all the time, who jogged and wanted to monitor their health sort of on a regular basis. And now yeah. we're seeing, you know, this idea that, that the actual working with physicians, what can happen there, but you know, I'm going to, just because Mike put me in such a downer mood with the introduction, uh, <laughs> one area that I've, I've been really interested in watching, though, is in things like critical care and cancer care. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. He's playing the cancer card. Um, that a lot of people um, either had to postpone their chemo or had to be really worried about this. But one of the things that was a dramatic effect was suddenly when people were going into treatment, they weren't allowed to go with caregivers or family. They had to go on their own and be on their own. And so, um, and in some ways, being able to FaceTime with someone while you're in that process was was the saving aspect to it. And so, Ah. once again, we're even seeing there that provide a human connection doesn't necessarily involve being in the same room, but these technologies are really coming to the point where we can connect in a different way. Um, The other thing that, that has stuck with me, Mike, and you were the one, I believe, who brought this up, which was rural library, a rural library, providing secure and private spaces for people to have these telehealth meetings that they couldn't necessarily get in their home. And now they could go to a library to have that sort of secure private connection. Even though it's telehealth, there's still people around you. And I think that that kind of providing that level of privacy, providing that level of support, I think is going to be really important for support organizations like libraries in this new era. What do you think? I mean, so I, we, you know, we've seen like the government turn towards e-government and we kind of know what that means for communities and that impact of having access. What do you think if more and more of our health system turns that 
to that direction too. Like what other kinds of needs are libraries going to have to play in kind of thinking about what you just mentioned, you know, private rooms, right? So that you can actually have privacy while you're talking to your doctor. You know, it's one of the things that I worry about for folks that don't have enough broadband or don't have enough computers. And we see that in school too, right? Like when everybody was was zooming in for school and for work, like sure you have Wi-Fi at home and maybe you have a laptop or two, but do you have enough for everybody to be on a device at the same time? And I think we are, you know, could really overburden our systems and really kind of uh, exacerbate some of the equity issues we're already facing in terms of technology and access. How do how can libraries prepare for that? Yeah, and and that brings up another an interesting point. And my my awesome library thing was going to be, but I'll just throw it in here now. I was <laughs> our own Beth Potan Potan um, did a lecture for Catholic University, which was really wonderful. And in there, you talked about the idea that pulsometers, things you put on your finger to see how much oxygen, are you know sort of built into the technology is they don't do so well on dark skin, and they haven't necessarily corrected that technology, even though it's a known issue. That raises up this idea that I have these telehealth connections and they're like, can you tell me your weight? It's like, yeah, I got a scale. And then can you tell me your blood pressure? Well, yeah, I got a blood pressure cuff. Can you tell me your pulse rate? Can you, I mean, it turns out I've got a bunch of this stuff here because at one time in my life, I needed to know that on a pretty regular basis. But that leads to the issue of, you know, will public libraries, will school libraries, will academic libraries loan out medical equipment? Because libraries have run away as mm-hmm. often as they can from medical issues. And so if they suddenly become intermediaries for the equipment that is used in telehealth, I think that's going to take a pretty substantial change in culture and, and attitude on both sides. People, people, you know, trust the equipment. Do they trust it because of the librarian? And are they going to suddenly be in an area where they feel uncomfortable? But if not libraries, then where? Because there aren't institutions in our society anymore um, that people normally go to. I mean, are they going to go to the the churches and the places of worship uh, for that kind of thing? Um, And so, I I mean, you just raised something, both of you, that I hadn't thought about. And that is, we assume that because of digital and online, that the need for the physical footprint of libraries was less. But actually, it may be more. That libraries need to have more space for more different things in order to provide an equitable and also uh, digitally at the right level um, space, whether it's for those kinds of uh, rooms that we talk about, the privacy, or even um, helping people in order to use those things, because a, a lot more senior people may not have, although they, you know, they want them to do telemedicine, they, they don't have the first clue on how to do that. And, uh, and, or physically, they may be unable to for some reason. So it sounds like, you know, the WeWorks model and the, the spaces uh, in the communities, it's it's kind of libraries may may have to do that kind of thing. And then I love the idea of loaning all kinds of. I remember going to North Carolina State, and they loaned just about anything out of that library um, because the campus needed a place that could keep track of things and monitor them and keep them up to. And, and so they they loaned out all kinds of things. And yeah, 
yeah, why shouldn't a school library be loaning out an asthma um, device to a, a student in conjunction with the school nurse, if they have one, right, and the medical community? And in the same way that Beth has talked about the emergency management role, so the libraries, and not just one-offs or in an emergency situation, but as a regular part of the routine library um, service plan, being able to deliver these kinds of things. So I I think you're right, because when we think about checking out things and stuff, libraries are definitely doing a lot more of that. I can think of a library here, kind of in the Syracuse area. They just have a bunch cake pan library where you can go in and get different shaped bunt pans, right? Because like who wants to make the same shaped cake every week? Um, so I could see I could see this kind of thing taking on. But what I can also imagine our librarians saying right now is vocational awe and like how many other things are we going to be responsible for? And it makes me think of what my dear friend, Dr. Clark, Rachel Clark would say is we can't do more with less. We can only do less with less. And so, you know, I think part of this too becomes medical equipment is often very expensive, not necessarily scales and blood pressure cuffs, but in getting to some of those other devices, they are, they can be more expensive than certainly a bunt cake pan. Um, And so, you know, again, we really would need to think about how we can restructure and kind of pushing the legislation to improve that kind of funding. Because I, I, I don't know if this is a service libraries can provide without something like that dramatically shifting. But uh, yeah, libraries, libraries, can't fill all the holes in society, particularly having universal health care. Um, but they can help advocate and prepare people and educate people on what that trade in and trade off. But that's interesting because, and it gets into the role of librarians. And one of the libraries that popped right to my mind, uh, Mike, as you talked about that, is the new Oslo Public Library in Norway, where they moved to a brand new, beautiful piece of architecture downtown main library with 50% of their old collection. And it wasn't so they could fill up the 50% again. It was because that's all they felt they needed. And the rest was going to go to public access space, connection space, these kinds of things. And I also think about academic libraries that if the the the, the pessimistic way of saying this would be that the strategic withdrawal, but I've seen work really well, which is as in academic libraries, as they've needed less physical space for things like the reference collection and the CD-ROM towers and these kinds of things, mm-hmm. that I've seen great librarians step up and invite to co-locate things like the Writing Center and Student Performance Center. Mm-hmm. Here at, at Texas, they uh, actually have the main visitor area for you know where all the, the parents and students come to get their campus visits is now in the library where they do the Welcome Center. But, it, but it, it reminds me then of another change that I think we're going to have to accommodate, whether it's in schools, whether it's in libraries, et cetera. And that is that when you begin to talk about health care and when you begin to talk particularly about treatment brought on by the pandemic, around the pandemic, changes of the pandemic, the one thing that I've seen happen in education spaces, in health spaces, in schools, is an increased direct application of politics into the pra- into the operations that that you know I'm I'm at a university that is a state agency 
And so therefore, when I have a governor in Texas that says you cannot ask about vaccinations, you cannot ask to mask, you cannot inquire about these things. And now we're even going to make it illegal to mandate people getting vaccinations, which just is insane. Anyway, you know, that's something that, you know, used to be, oh, governor said something. Does it affect our budget? Now it turns into that's my classroom. Right. And libraries and school libraries, I mean, school libraries in Texas now have to worry about what do we do about critical race theory? And what do we do about, you know, anything in history that might accidentally upset someone, um, you know, the majority? You know, these are this. I think what we're seeing the pandemic with the new normal. When you talk about healthcare, when you talk about these issues, is the idea that the polit- that these have become politicized and that it's politicized at the direct level of service provision. It's no longer sort of happening above and beyond. And so, you know, I could see a library saying, that's great. We're going to provide, well, we've had, we've had, um, we've had the Charleston County Public Library that provided vaccinations and COVID testing. And what happens when they say, oh, your library should not be providing vaccinations because those are evil, right? That's, that's no longer a generic or abstract concept. That's a frontline librarian deciding what they're going to do about this. Yeah, so it's, um, don't go ahead, Beth. Then I'll. Jump I was going to say it's it's one of the things that makes me thankful about being at Syracuse right now is because we did have a va- vaccine mandate really early on, um, almost immediately, and we kind of knew even before the vaccine was developed that they were going to really push that. And um, I think something like ninety seven percent of our students, faculty, and staff are vaccinated on campus. So right now, you know, being on campus is one of the safest places I could be. But also the in the wider Syracuse community, we have a positivity rate of almost 4%. Our hospitals are starting to be completely overwhelmed. And so, you know, it's not just that I can magically appear at school. I rely on public transportation, which means every time I have to go to campus, right, I'm taking risks that I can go to work. When I know that I can teach just as well from this place as I can like standing in front of that building. So the risks seem strange, but you know, I'm happy to spend time with, with the students, with the kids in the classroom. What I really resent, I think is the idea that we are going to have like faculty planning day with eight hours of sitting with everybody in a room and people are going to be eating and it's going to be all of us or, you know, getting pushed to try to go to football games and things like that. And I think Mike, going back to one of those first things that you said, like, why are we pretending that this is over and I'm happy to do what I need to do for my job, but I don't want to get continuously gaslighted about coming and participating and eating dinner with strangers and the NILA conference is coming up and, you know, Syracuse is going to host a dinner. And it's like, I just don't want to eat with people right now. I'm still not going into restaurants, right? I'm still making things here. I might go grab food and bring it home, but I'm not ready for that. And it's, you know, I, it makes me feel like, am I a little bit crazy for still not doing that? And then I see our numbers and I'm like, oh yeah, no, it's, it's clearly everybody else. And I think we see schools, like how do we deliver what we've promised, right? And that school experience, but I am tired of pretending that everything is okay. It's, it's getting exhausting, you know, trying to balance and saying no to things. Cause I, I, I don't know how we continue to push people like this. So, yeah, 
one of the things that I've heard from both of you is a great topic, and maybe it's a topic for the next podcast, <laughs> which is the politicization of everything. Yeah. And what does that really mean for the new normal? And is that the new normal for the foreseeable future for the next 10 years? I would say it is, and maybe it's forever. And I don't think it's ever been to this degree before. So let's hold that. And then let's come back a minute to one something you, you said, Beth, that, but you said it real quickly that I can stay here and teach just as well as if I'm going in. So let's, let's talk about that in terms of education, because I think the general impression is that, oh, no, 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 this online education and whatever, it's so much worse than face-to-face learning that you can do so much more and face-to-face is so much better. And maybe we can, you know, pull this apart even from K-12 and into higher ed. So what is your experience? Why do you say that, that I can do it just as well, if not better from here? Yeah, I, that that is a really good question. So part of it is that I know for the last year and a half, I taught online. My students were extremely engaged. I feel like I know them even better than I actually got to know them in the classroom because not only did I get to talk at them... <laughs> I mean, I let them talk too, but mostly I'm talking at them, but then they're also participating in the chat. And probably one of my most beautiful experiences teaching over the last year and a half is that for my last class in our Intro to Library and Information Sciences courses, we do a little elevator pitch. And we kind of say that it's like a meet cute with like the person that's going to hire you. So have a little phrase, you know, set up a little scenario where you meet this person and you want the job and like, you know, woo us. And we've done that every year that I've taught in person and everybody does their little pitch. There's 30 people in class. You know, we have time to give a little bit of feedback, but you know, it's not like everybody can say what they think. Well, by the time we got to the end of the semester and we were all really used to each other online, when people were doing their elevator pitches, it was such an experience of like love and support from all of the students because every time somebody gave a pitch, everybody was in the chat like, oh my God, I'd give you a job or you, like, you know, you just crushed that and you could just really see them encouraging each other. One of the things I think that's most important for me when I'm teaching is building community and building that kind of engagement. And I have not seen a lack of that. Um, And now that I'm back in person, the thing that's weird is that everybody's wearing a mask and I'm wearing a mask. So even though we're in the same physical space, which I, which I do admit is nice. And I, I like teaching. I love being in a room with people. So it's not that I'm against that, but it's also really weird to just see this part of people's faces. I, I, would prefer to see their whole face (laughs) online than rather seeing some of their faces in person. And, um, but you know, to me, I don't think that my, I don't, my level of engagement didn't go down. My grades didn't go down. I don't, student satisfaction has not gone down when I look at my teaching evaluations. So, I mean, if I'm using those things as metrics, you know, it seems the same to me. Dave, what do you think? You know, I, I have I have to give Lucy Green um, at, at the University of South Carolina a uh, shout out for for this concept, which was there is a distinct difference between teaching online 
an emergency teaching online that, that yeah. we, yeah. you know, there are many times and K-12, you know, there were many experiences that was the first time these teachers had ever worked online, um, sure. much less had to adapt their curriculum to online, much less had to figure out the technology on, right? It was just, it was a new environment. And, you know, so, so I have, <laughs> I have this interesting experience of having shifted universities in the middle of a pandemic. One that has been teaching, you know, you remember Dan Barron, you know, working with online education back when it was sending satellite closed captioning yeah. TV. Yeah. Um, and then one that. that, that, yeah, one that prided itself on and still does on being an in-person program. And it, it, it it's really interesting because the same discussions happen. It have happened that, that, back when Syracuse started its program that are happening now, which they start with, you can't teach online to, okay, we can teach survey stuff online and reading stuff online, but you can't do, you can't do skill stuff. All right. You could do some skill stuff as long as technology, but you can't build community. Okay. You, right. So there's this, this, because back in the day with Syracuse, back in 1992, it was, we're bringing our students on campus for a week. And so everyone made it a one week course. I mean, they said it was all semester, but it was really one week course. And then, you know, after a couple of years, like, why bother having them come in? We got this. And what's interesting to watch, like in Texas or in my colleagues in the journalism program back in, in South Carolina, they had the same discussion, but it happened in a month instead of happening over yeah. four years. Um, yeah. And uh, but the, so for that month, I really feel bad for the students because that yeah. month was it was it was faculty that weren't prepared. And I, I don't mean that as in a failing on their part. They were not provided with preparation and training right. and materials. They well, didn't they have the experience. Be. Right. They were they were terrified that they were going to die. You know, it was all of this stuff going sure. on at one point. And so particularly in K-12, there have been now, now that standardized testing has begun again. And once again, I want to, I want to take Beth's point, which is, you know, we got what we measure. I mean, it may not be measuring the right things, but at least gives us something to look at. They're not good, right? The standardized testing is coming out of K-12 shows a real significant dip in performance and, mm -hmm. and learning over that, that year. And I, and is it because it's online? It was because it was emergency online. It was because that, it a, was rushed and a, thrown out. Yeah. That's a, a great, great point, Dave. Yes. That the, the, the emergency aspect, but it's forced people to begin to learn and to start to get trained in that. And, and my hypothesis is that that's the new emerging new normal, that going back to full face-to-face -face, um, is probably not an option. And it shouldn't be, A, because of what Beth says, that the pedagogy can be even better online. I agree totally that if you know what you're doing and you've had the training, that you can create more of a community in a class that is online than a class that meets once a week for three hours. I mean, it's just, just makes sense. Right. And particularly yeah. if it's a, go ahead. Yeah. I, 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 your point is really well taken because I do think that higher ed and teaching adults is definitely different than teaching little kids. And while I have mm -hmm. a lot of experience teaching little kids, I don't have that same experience teaching them online. And I can imagine the kinds of distractions that they have. And even having taught a computer class, like I know how the kids acted in there and it's, it's a distracting environment. And certainly to have to switch and learn that quickly is really problematic. Um, 
you know, but also we can learn how to do this. And and one of the things, you know, that I, and just kind of shifting from education to libraries just a little bit, I mm-hmm. think about the ways that so many libraries started putting story times online and starting doing mm-hmm. programming online. And, and one of the things I've really talked to my students about is when we have those kinds of services, it really becomes more accessible because community, if you have a mobility issue, if you have a transportation mm-hmm. issue, if you can't get your kids down to the library for story time, well, you can still participate if you have Wi-Fi and you have a laptop. And so thinking about how do we kind of maybe make something where it's the best of both worlds, um, you yeah. know, where we are having some of the face-to-face action, but what are the things that are happening better online? And, you know, I I think that maybe my students talk better when they're online too, because they have a little bit of distance and some safety especially probably because I teach some classes that are, you know, we talk about really hard things. And so if we're all in the room and somebody gets upset, we can all feel it. Versus if we're online, you can turn off your camera for a second, take time to collect yourself. You have, you know, a little bit of distance to protect yourself too. Um, But acknowledging that's not necessarily going to work for kids. And I, I was really talking about, you know, specifically my experience with higher ed. Well, and, and I want to I want to play the context card here again, which is <laughs> annoying, but I want to do it because I'm reminded of a conversation I have with Sue Kowalski. I think you might, you know, Sue. Um, I don't know if you've met her yet, Beth, but she's at the East Syracuse Manoa, right? So she's a great yeah. school librarian, just an incredible school librarian. And I was interviewing her during the, the first couple of months of the pandemic. And uh, she was in a situation several years ago. They were redoing her building. They took all her students, scattered them to other buildings around the district, and she went out and bought a used RV and would drive from parking lot to parking lot to sort of meet with them. And we were talking about, you know, and so this is this is a woman who's one dealt with virtual for a long time, is brilliant at what she does in person, won awards, and and the kind of community she builds up among students. It's amazing, right? So I I figured this would be a good person to talk to. And at the end, it got really real for a moment because I said, I said, so, you know, how, so this isn't a big deal for you. She goes, actually, she says, you know, with my students, I tried, I tried to build community. I tried to create online things. I tried to create virtual versions of this. I tried lots of things and the students were all for it and they started and then they started drifting off and drifting off. And she finally said, you know, what's going on? The students said, I I can't. They, they said, I can't be on Zoom another minute. I can't deal with the pressure here. I can't keep up with my classes. I can't. And 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 Sue was very clear. She said, and 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 as a li- school librarian, I can't because I don't have that kind of input and energy coming from the students and all these other things. And so I worry that when we begin to think about the new normal and when we begin to think about the opportunities of the new normal. We don't make the mistake of thinking, not even if it's an emergency teaching, if it's really good online teaching, if it's really good online teaching, I think it's going to have one effect. If it's really good online teaching in the middle of a pandemic, I think it's still going to be skewed and change that results. When I looked at all these universities, when we went online, the number one thing that we set up were surveillance of the students. And I don't mean in a nasty, creepy way. I mean, students aren't showing up. That could mean problems. We've got to make sure that we're checking in with them. Students come because they're having 
you know, social issues. They're having, they're needing teletherapy. They're needing these things. And I had faculty coming and saying, I've taught online for 25 years, but I haven't taught online with, with broken people, including myself, um, yeah. in dealing yeah. with those kinds yeah. of situations. I think yeah, you're, I, you're, we, you're absolutely ahead, right. You know, the, the, it, it, a lot of it has to do with the time online and the FaceTime. My, my granddaughter um, is a high school student and she's been, you know, last year she was forced to be online six to eight hours at a time with like five to 10 minute breaks between classes, a half hour for lunch. And then in order to keep them or try to keep them up, the teachers would give them three hours of homework which was all online because they had to do online thing. So <laughs> she just, and I watched where, where she just exploded. I can't do this anymore. I can't be on. No. I, and, and, and she really suffered. They're back face to face now. And in spite of the masks and whatever, which create their own problems, I'll tell you just a quick funny story. My daughter is an elementary teacher. And with the masks, it is a heck of a challenge with those kids. They, they chew on their masks all day long and they get wet and drippy and ugly and whatever. So by the time it's half, they have to change their masks and then they have to do it's Laura does it, this comedy bit with her, her class or whatever. They're all sitting there. Um, so I think you're right. Also, our tools will get better, but it's clearly a balance and a, and a hybrid that what do we do well and whatever that, and, and that's a lesson in general for us, right? That, you know, we don't have to be afraid of moving to a totally virtual world and life where everybody's sitting in their, you know, armchairs. It's like the uh, Wally movie or something <laughs> like that, where everybody's sitting there drinking their, you know, oversized Cokes all day long. Um, because, no, it, that just doesn't work. I'm going to give each of you a, a last minute or two, and then we, we need to tie it up, unfortunately, um, or fortunately, and then uh, get on to our awesome library thing. So, yes. Beth, why don't you so, go ahead? Yeah, so I I want to think about, too, I think one of the things we haven't really touched on in talking about all of this is all of the extra labor that it took. Dave, you mentioned broken people, and I think so many of us have been broken in this experience. Mm. I, I mean, I've really had struggles, and this week is a rough week for me work-wise. Um, and I, we are broken. And I think, you know, treating each other with kindness and empathy and, and you know, having grace for others and ourselves is really important right now. Um, but we also haven't accounted for the extra labor. And so I think about when Syracuse moved to go online, well, we spent that entire summer planning for having hybrid classes in the fall and the next spring. And so I really feel like I haven't had any time off to sit and process, to sit and mourn everything that's happened. Um, and so, I mean, that's one of these other things is, you know, we already know that we don't value some of the labor that happens in library spaces and in school spaces. We don't pay teachers what they are worth. Um, I want to give Dr. Clark a shout out, too, because she just finished her True Value project, which is, which, you know, we, ha we see those... Uh, 
those metrics that tell you how much money you save with libraries, but they talk about book prices. What they often don't calculate is the labor that has gone into picking out that book, buying that book, processing that book, getting it on the shelf and getting it into your hands. And so her true value calculator is kind of giving us more real estimates of what that labor costs and kind of the invisible labor behind librarianship. And so I wonder what does it mean if we start valuing this labor differently, both for the teachers, you know, and librarians and starting to add that into the equation. So it's not just that we're pushing to make these emergent changes, but that we're really finding ways to be more equitable about how much time we're spending, how much labor we're doing, and then paying people accordingly. And I know that's Mm -hmm. like a lofty, you know, idea, but if we can add some real numbers to this, I think we can start making some more, um, you know, uh, reasonable arguments, uh, at least providing some different kinds of evidence for these arguments. Great point. Yeah, I, I think that that building on that, which is, you know, we, we've been talking about how the pandemic is, I mean, it's, it's horrible. Um, and its cost has been horrible. And so what can we learn from it? What can we take from it? And um, I think the idea of first acknowledging, and, and there's been a lot of discussions about wellness and the idea of self-care and the importance of self-care. Uh, and we talked, um, once again, I, I like the idea of sort of libraries as first restorers about people coming in doing that once we are able to ourselves, once we, we acknowledge the cost and, and that's involved with it. Um, but I keep coming back to your, your comments, Mike, about having a tough week because it, it is a tough week and every week's a tough week because it's not just the pandemic and those numbers. It's also the division and ideological division. And it's also just, you know, people can be horrible. And um, I think that if we don't, taking Beth's point, if we don't address the big systemic issues in this, if we don't look at the idea of the new normal, trying to build unity and bringing community conversations, and yes, we can reserve it for another conversation. But what's really Mm -hmm. interesting, it used to be Libraries and politics were a taboo conversation, or it happened in that little special group over there. And now it is everything. It is influencing everything from our workforce to when we are open. You know, increasingly, frontline workers see that as a political decision and not a service decision. Uh, We're seeing that in budgets. We're seeing this across the board. And I think that um, we need to take this opportunity to, you know, if we're going to heal let's aim big and talk about heal truly how we connect into a democratic society where we take care of our citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Great conversation, everyone. And I do think that we should pick it up next time, next podcast with the topic of the politicization of just about everything and, and, and focus on that, but we're not quite done now. We're going to take a very short break. And when we come back, we're going to have our awesome library thingy. So, Yanni, give us a little musical interlude so we can catch our breath. Here we go now. Okay, we're back, 
and I'm Mike Eisenberg again, and we're in the final segment where we identify something really cool, interesting, fun, exceptional in libraries. We call it the awesome library thingy. Beth, what do you have for your awesome library thingy this episode? Yeah, so I want to give a shout out to my research group, the Library and Information Investigative Team that I started at Syracuse. We applied for three different IMLS grants, and we were well, we applied for four, but we received three. And most importantly, we got two IMLS early career grants. And I think for the first time ever in the history of IMLS, Two people at one institution got it in the same award um, round. And so I got my early career grant to focus on community resilience and public libraries and how libraries support their communities. And my friend, Dr. Laverne Gray, got an early career IMLS grant to look at and how to su- how libraries can support Black genealogy work. And I, I really just want to push that this is an example of how when we are working together and supporting each other, we can do more things together rather than kind of having that deficit mindset. And so we're really operating with an ethics of care, and it really paid off for us this year. Uh, Mike, what's your awesome thing? Yeah, th- th- that that's great. Uh, um I want to make a, a paid commercial announcement for the IMLS, the Institute <laughs> for Museum and Library Services, which has been around since the George W. Bush um, administration. Uh, Laura Bush deserves a lot of credit for helping that to get off the ground. And it's made a huge difference in our field. And for the people listening to this podcast, let your Congress people know, let the government know just how awesome and important the Institute for Museum and Library Services, IMLS, is. Uh, and at our own universities, we need to let our um, lobbying offices know that, hey, there's this thing called IMLS. And it's important because it, it it's a unique focus for us. Uh, so that that's great. great. Point. Well, I, I did look for a, a positive one, and I came up <laughs> with, it wasn't that hard, really. The San Diego Public Library um, has been really focusing on providing services for uh, people who are working from home or working uh, not at their offices. And uh, they have provided specialized and um, spacious workspaces for individuals. Uh, and the staff to particularly help people with disabilities, just what we were talking about. Uh, they have something called the Idea and Innovation Labs. They have a career online high school, um, and they have a, they're working on a micro business center. So these are all examples of the library providing long term, not just emergency, but long term services, resources, space for people that are going to be working from home uh, all or, or part-time. And I, again, I think we need more of that with the caveat that you say that we can't do it with less. We have to do it with more, uh, but we need to get the word out. You know, we need to talk to the, um, to the chamber of commerce folks. We need to talk to the lions club and the rotaries and let them just know how important libraries are. So that's my awesome library thinging. Take it away, Dave. You know who the first director of IMLS was? Bob Martin. You know Bob yes, Martin? Yes, Bob Martin oh. from the University of Texas. State Library of Texas. Thank you very much. All right. I know. I, I, I'm in, now being a Texas person, I really 
desperately need to find things and a really that I good brag guy about. <laughs> he was oh Bob was awesome. Uh, my library thingy is actually keeping it home as well. University of Texas uh, Libraries just announced a series of open educational resource fellows. Um, and so they've created a working group um, specifically about the idea of open educational resources. And they're working very hard to build a community and cohort of faculty. So for those of you who may not be familiar with OER, um, it's just the idea that when we teach classes, the idea of you know, we already pay this tuition and then you've got this hundred dollar textbook on top of it. And then you've got all these things with all the ability to produce and publish and all the media that's available, YouTube and everything. Aren't there ways for us to find freely available uh, educational resources to teach in our classes? Um, and, and once again, when you build your entire pedagogy around a textbook, which is what textbooks were created for, let's be quite honest, they were structured to be a support for a classroom you know, replacing them is not necessarily easy for folks. And so I love the fact that libraries are one, not just helping to find and support it and advocate for it, but now they're going and investing to build a community of instructors around the campus to be sort of incentive, you know, give them incentive to try it so that they can bring, they can tell a friend and they can tell a friend and they can tell a friend. So I really like the idea that uh, they're taking a community-based approach from what we just talked about, uh, not just a um, wouldn't it be great or tisk tisking them, but actually going and empowering faculty and supporting them and making the change and then having them lead it elsewhere. So uh, a little bit of a brag for my new home institution. But with that, we conclude the first of our new season and our new formats. I want to thank everyone for listening. I certainly want to thank Yanni from Ace Chicago Events, our producer and sound guy. Ace Chicago for event production services, including sound, lighting, photo booths in the Chicago area, or online virtual streaming services at acechicagoevents.com. You will be very happy. I also want to thank uh, the iSchool at the University of Texas at Austin and Syracuse University for their support of this program. Please, please subscribe to us and rate us on Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please share a review. It's very important that we get the word out. And if you have ideas, comments, you want to yell at us, whatever it is, please contact us via our email, which is info, I-N-F-O, at librarieslead.org or on our Facebook group, Libraries Lead in the New Normal. However, if you do, in fact, go to the Facebook group, realize, of course, you're supporting evil. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about <laughs> that probably in our, in our next session. And uh, Mike will, be, will play the role of whistleblower. Anyway, our website is www.librarieslead.org. And we are out of here. Thank you all. Thanks. Bye now. See you next time. Thanks, y'all.